Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Jedediah Jenkins, author of the just-released Mother Nature. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. Nature, the universe speaks in metaphor and one of its truest things is paradox, is holding two things that are both true at once. Like, I remember laying in bed, I was probably 12. And before I go to bed, I'm thinking about the universe because my brain suddenly works. And I'm like, how can space be infinite? Infinity makes no sense to my mind. So then I'm imagining space, expand, 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 and then I hit a wall, which is the edge of space. And then I go, okay, so let's say space isn't infinite. Well, if you get to the edge of space, to the wall, what's on the other side of the wall? There has to be something on the other side of the wall. There can't be nothing. And so I remember thinking in that moment, those two scenarios are both impossible. But then also finiteness is impossible because there must be something on the other side of the wall. And I, I remember laying there being like, oh, I actually think the computer brain that we have is not designed to understand the wholeness of reality. We're stuck in a partial understanding. It's likely fate that Jedediah Jenkins is a writer, a New York Times bestseller at that. After all, his parents sold more than 12 million books in the early years of their writing careers when they were still married and a duo. They wrote a series of books about walking, yep, walking, across America. In Jedediah's latest book, Mother Nature, he retraces their journey by car with his mother riding shotgun. He suggested this trip to his mom because he wanted to see the world through her eyes, to understand who she is by accessing who she was, and also because of a chasm that keeps them apart. See, Jedediah is gay, while his mother believes ardently that homosexuality is a sin and a choice. Mother Nature is a beautiful and tender love story between a mother and a son that revolves around one of Jedediah's foundational beliefs that he cannot excommunicate his mother, 
even if she might not come to his eventual marriage to a man. Okay, let's get to our conversation. It's so nice to finally meet you. I feel like we must have friends in common, but we've never (laughs) somehow crossed paths. I know. I'm in a cute little cabin and I was in Silver Lake for eight and a half years, which I loved. But I lived with my best friends and I'm like, I'm like, I've never lived alone. And, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to catch a husband and then I might not live alone again. So let me try this. Where is your husband? Is he close? Do you I don't feel know like where my like... husband is. I feel that he's close. I feel ready for him, but I don't know if he's ready for me. I don't know where he is. He might be in the jungles of drc but well (laughs) (laughs) but wherever he is he's cosmically looking for me too or you know maybe i already know him you know who knows i know with books that you put them to bed well maybe you only put this book to bed recently but since you're more established i just published my first book so it's a long as you know a long lead up i don't think people realize the gap between you when you send a book into production and when it actually lands in people's hands. And sometimes things change or can change dramatically in the time. But maybe your book in some ways was the final invitation. It feels like maybe you're, maybe you're that much closer to calling him in. Oh, I, I think you're totally right. So this book is like, for those who haven't read it yet, it's about, my complicated relationship with my mother. And like one of the key points or moments of the book is this rift my mom has because she's conservative and religious, like Jesus is coming any minute vibes. And so she just cannot accept same sex relationships. So all that to say a big turning point in the book is like when I confront her about, will you come to my gay wedding when it happens? It's not do anytime soon but what if it is and are you going to come and i don't want to assume you're not going to come if you've actually changed your mind over the years over the 20 years i've been out and it it was a big point of i guess closure or just like turning a page for me in that Mm -hmm. experience with her that it made me feel like a big boy like an adult there was an incredible paragraph at the end about belonging and acceptance and sort of where we culturally are. But what's so beautiful about the book is it's a rare quality, I think, people who can really hold someone close while looking at them or giving, granting them a full humanity and not sanitizing the parts that are painful. And that's very rare to read something like that, that is so loving, so venerating, so accepting, while not minimizing your own pain because so many of us have really nuanced, complex relationships with our parents. And if we could actually breathe into it and own it and recognize the ways in which it was amazing and the ways in which it wasn't, we would be so much closer, I think, to accepting our parents. There's something that happens in our culture that's like to criticize is to negate. We really struggle with that. I think that ambivalence, but I thought it was very moving. And I thought it was interesting that your father, who sort of only figures on the margins of the page and seems like he figures more in the margins of your life, is like, I will walk you down the aisle, which is very beautiful. And your mom doesn't think she can actually be there, but she's your emergency contact. 
What I tried to grasp or what I tried to just look closely at was this paradox of tensions that is a loving relationship with a parent who is painful. And I mm -hmm. think the framework of it being a conservative religious and a gay son is almost like an easy one because there's like so many heterosexual cisgender kids that didn't become the doctor that they wanted or didn't marry the person that they wanted or didn't stay in town. And there's all these like tiny earthquakes and tiny death by a thousand cuts that comes from the relationship we have with our parents or siblings or whatever it is that is so difficult to grasp. And our brains are so addicted to the binary of just like good, evil, you know, yes. painful, painful, joyful. And it's like, especially if family is anything, it's a teacher. And it's that like, if you can't figure out how to exercise the muscle of holding something in that tension, you will lose at life. You will lose important relationships. You will lose key opportunities for love and growth. And you'll lose family members. Before I wrote this book, my relationship with my mom is very public. I like think she's the funniest person in the world. So I like post her on the internet a lot. And people know her beliefs because I've written about them in previous books. So people were always like, how do you do it? Like you and your mom get, are so sweet together. How do you do this? And that was really a big impetus for this book was me being asked that a lot and me not knowing the answer. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I do it. I don't know what it is, but it deserves a book length look. My hope is that People who feel conflicted, confused about their relationship with their parents, that it just makes them realize that they're not alone in that confusion and that you can love somebody unconditionally and you can have really strong boundaries. And sometimes mm -hmm. people, people shouldn't be in a relationship with their parents. That's very real. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting to me that your mom has her strong beliefs, this focus on the word of scripture, or that it's the word of God, not something that's been translated and mistranslated and interpreted over time, right. uh, scripture that has evolved to move past things that we just don't accept anymore, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's a lot of slavery. Yeah, exactly. There's tons of stuff that we're like, these are not our moral values anymore. We don't believe in this. And it's interesting how she still holds this. And I don't know, I've never experienced you two together. But it seems to me like there's no one she would rather spend time with. Like there's this seemed like a full body embrace. And this lingering question of, I don't know if my mom will come to my wedding, which then just for context, so people understand it's maybe not as much about the day, but about will she accept my the fact that I'm married to a man and yeah. children and mm -hmm, will mm -hmm. she be part of our family or will I see her yeah. on the side? Uh, yeah. yeah. But the fact that you didn't know to me feels like she doesn't, isn't at least like hammering you on the daily with rejection. I mean, it sounds like you've had a fair amount of religious trauma, but it's interesting that it's still a question, even though you've spent so much time with her, um, yeah. so that it's not so forward in your relationship. Well, that's the difference. And my friend, I was just 
talking about a trip I'd gone on with my mom and we'd driven around the European Alps and it was so fun. And my gay friend who has no relationship with his mother, he goes, you're so lucky that your mom has redeemable qualities. Mm. And I was like, because like, I don't agree with her politics or her religion, but she's so fun and kind and optimistic and joyful and adventurous and silly and loving. And this was what I learned is that she leads with love and like her righteousness and certainty is in the back seat. It's in the car, but it's not driving. <laughs> yeah. And, and some people, their righteousness and certainty is driving fully right. driving. And you can't even be in the room with them because they're like so grumpy that you don't agree with their worldview or that you're a disappointment or that you're an abomination. And I don't know. I, I think my mom would love me no matter how mean-spirited I was, but I'm also really fun and I don't like confrontation. <laughs> you know, I'm her son. I'm not like fall in line or get the fuck out of here. Like I don't move through the world like that. I would say up to like four or five years ago, about once a week, I would get a forwarded email or like mm. a text of an article that's like, something to think about this guy he lived the homosexual lifestyle for 10 years and then he went to a prayer vigil and got saved and now he's married to a woman with three kids something th something to think about for, you know like she just like throw it out there and it would happen so much I, I was like mom I will never believe this you are not allowed to send this to me anything like this ever again and I had to really draw a boundary and yeah she was well, sorry, in the, in the reply email. And she didn't again. I mean, I think maybe in five years she sent one. Like just right. trying, you know, like a velociraptor testing the electric <laughs> fence. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I mean, but you've clearly done so much work around this that it feel it's reading it, you felt on the page hopeful, but yet not sort of triggered, which is amazing to be at a place of relative equanimity. I was just listening to this podcast with Father Richard Rohr and just thinking about people whose certainty is in the front seat. He said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certitude. So That's beautiful. great. Yeah. I love that man. I mean, right? I stalk him on podcasts. I don't <laughs> have access to him, but I beg his people. It was on a podcast called The Sacred Speaks. Is it recent or old? It just came out maybe a couple days ago. And this host is interested in a lot of the same people that I am. He's a Jungian therapist, but he's very interested in that conversation, which is my favorite conversation. I'm going to listen to that today. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. But that certitude or that certainty is, is quite impossible. I want to read to you from your book, if you don't mind, at the end where you write, you write I've noticed a general sentiment of discourse online. That lack of total acceptance is total rejection. The thought goes like this. If your family says they love you, but they can't accept your sexuality, they aren't allowed to say they love you. They don't love all of you, therefore they don't love you. You have to draw a boundary and say that's not acceptable and remove them from your life. And then you go on and say that you cannot excommunicate. I thought that was so beautiful and so true and so binary, right? This is beyond you know, son-mother relationships. This is beyond 
sexuality and gender, it's politics, it's our whole world, right? You are fully with me or you are inherently against me. And where do you think that that came from? Do you think this is just who we are as humans? It feels like it's becoming more and more entrenched as identity becomes so, so primary in our culture. Well, I interviewed Richard Rohr once and I asked him. It was unbelievable. I mean, I've been to a couple of his like little conference things. I mean, in Santa Fe, like what a dream. And he said that culture moves in exhales and inhales and the pendulum swings. And he was like, there's times of unity and there's times of atomization. And so like at one point there was like one newscaster, Walter Cronkite, we're Americans, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is like a very white centric world, but that's how it was. There was like three channels. And then now we're like responding to that. The pendulum pendulum is swinging. And now the particularities of your identity down to the very minutia are who you are. And we're like all separating. And he believes society Mm -hmm. moves like this. And it's so interesting because I, I was thinking about this. I remember feeling it during Black Lives Matter. And now I very much feel it in the Israeli Gaza war of fall in line, total acceptance, or you are on the side of evil and all means necessary, like to achieve our goal, like burn down target, burn down the police station, burn down Gaza, burn down colonialism, burn down, which is so interesting. It's so human. And it's so funny because I have this inclination as a politically progressive person that like left of center is more humane and more human and more caring about the little guy and dun, 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 dun. but it's so interesting to see mm-hmm. how the message of Jesus and the message of Gandhi and the message of the Sufi mystics and the message of eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, love thy neighbor, turn the other cheek, dun, all these incredibly stereotypical stupid things to say that that those things were villainized by the left as ideologically lazy or naive. And it's just so interesting. I just see it as like the idea of loving your enemy and seeing their humanity as opposed to turning red eyed and seeing them as something that must be destroyed is so basic primal. And yet we just do it. It's in our DNA. It's what we love to do is create an enemy rally around stopping that enemy and thinking that our rally is deeply righteous. And it feels so good to be in a team that is righteously angry and moving. It feels so good. And it is deeply scary. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. 
so soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. I'm right with you feeling unmoored and, yeah, very shaken by this moment of time, but also, yeah, in the sense of I thought we all agreed on some basic ideas, but yes, I'm, I think the wielding of righteousness is terrifying. The projection of shadow onto other people is terrifying. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because we know this. Like, we've known it since, like, all these books about totalitarianism and fascism and da 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 da. Like, step one is dehumanizing your enemy and calling them animals. That is the most obvious step one of, like, you're about to commit an atrocity. And that's all that's all that I've seen happen in the last four years is whether it's our president or whether it's a movement or whether it's one side of this and that, they just are calling the other side animals. I'm like, wow, has anyone read one book? I don't think so. Well, and it's interesting, though, too, because we are animals. True. <laughs> but do you know Spiral Dynamics? Oh, my God. Let, let, let me be clear. I've listened to three podcasts about it. It's a very, like, white man who listens to podcasts like oh my god spiral dynamics changed my life i've listened to three podcasts but well, i'm with you i'm not an it. expert but i love it and i'm trying to find the right conversation partner for a podcast about it because and it was interesting this week feeling so unmoored i was like wait i need to stabilize myself in some sort of worldview to understand what's happening and spiral dynamics to me feels like the closest example of the d- need to push to the next level as we yeah. see green just like go wild. And, and the recognition that all of these tiers, all of these levels of the spiral have a tremendous amount of value and that they're all present exactly. in all of us and across the world in different uh, amounts and potencies. But that to deny any of them is a fallacy. For people who aren't listening, I'm going to just, should I just tell people the basic levels? I'll do it really fast, but so that they understand what we're talking about. So beige is started 100,000 years ago. It's instinctive. It's living off the land. It's the basic need for food, water, sex, shelter. Then emerge from this level, purple, 
which is spiritual, magical, this idea that... And, and what you're saying is as you achieve the first level and you reach a harmony there, you move to the next level. Or a disharmony. Oh, uh, yeah. Is, I think that it's like you get to the edge of beige and you're like, there's something more or this, this is yeah, not yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so then purple comes, which is this idea that this animistic, magical world where a cow dies because God's right. mad. But these things, these themes are still present, right? This is religion, the observance of rites, of passage, seasonal cycles. They all have their beautiful moments. And then from there becomes red, which is the egocentric. You start to see the formation of the ego 10,000 years ago. It's full of threats and predators. I'm just reading from this sort of primary document. Wanting to be I, me, dominant, fear-based, conquers, outfoxes, stands tall. But this is like the formation of the beginning of a, a different type of culture. Then we move into blue, judicial, religion, organization, hierarchy, government, checks and balances. From there, we get into orange, which is sort of the advent. This is 300 years ago. Rationalism, the desire to dominate the environment. We get medicine. We get science. We also get a a ton of consumerism. From there, we get green, which is this communitarian, egalitarian. Every story counts. Every person counts. Mm -hmm. No life has greater value. We're all sharing this planet. There's Mm -hmm. lots of beauty in green, but then it starts to deny the validity of the other levels and or their existence in other parts of the world. And so you get green saying like, screw consumerism. It's like, well, don't you enjoy your house? Do you like the electrical? Are you happy to have an ambulance? It's self-righteous. And we're trying to get to the next tier, which is yellow, that's not beyond binaries, but is a little bit more adaptive, practical, holding all sides, cognizant of the whole. Anyway, that's spiral dynamics. I love that I'm like trying to teach spiral dynamics in this moment, but it is we're there. It. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, tell us so, more about it. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know more than you. I just love when someone systematizes what's going on and you see that we're all just like part of this giant abacus machine. Like, I love thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as well. Just where are you? If you're freaked out about your rent and feeding your kids, you're not meditating and watching clips of Ram Dass because you're like, I don't have time for that. Like, I don't need self-actualization right now. I need food. The way we all fit into this life, I don't know. Apparently, there are friends, Claire Graves and Abraham Maslow. So this is supposed to be the animation of uh, Maslow. I can imagine that their theories were improved by sitting around with a cocktail talking. My friends and I often talk about, because I'm obsessed with the concept of like, what are your primary subterranean motivations? Like, what are we doing Mm. this for? Like, are you working for 10 years at this corporate job and you're getting stocks and you're doing this and you've got this for what? Like, are you going to die here? Or do you want to start your own thing? Are you like happy in this push situation? Because living in Los Angeles, I'm sure Brentwood is exactly the same as it is over here is there's a very interesting overlay and maybe this is how it is in every city where keeping up with the joneses is such an a wild experience in la especially when you're younger like 
LA might be the only city I know of where you can be 25 and your friend is living in a $4 million house that they got from TikTok money and you're a barista <laughs> and can barely make your rent, but you're best friends and you hang yes. out all the time. And it's just like this really weird experience where it's just like the schism, like my friend group, some of them have millions of dollars and some of them have $30,000 and that's it. And it's like, and that's how it's been for years. And all that to say, some people start to really get claustrophobic in their own, their own life. And they're like, how do I make more money? How do I make more money? How do I, especially as you approach 40, which by the way, fiscal responsibility, I believe in that. Like you should <laughs> figure out a way to be safe with your life and like have some backups. But I have really realized that I do not care about having tons of money. I do not yeah. care. I care about having a cute house, a small house, and maybe another small house like in the mountains, but a shack, you know, and I'm on Zillow. They're $150,000. I mean, I might have to go to Home Depot and fix them, but how fun. And I, my dream scenario is to be, to be sitting around a fire with my friends, drinking Mezcal and talking about spiral dynamics. That is like when I think about <laughs> what I'm doing on this planet, it's that. And every single thing I've ever written, every book, every blog, every anything comes from those conversations. Every thought I've ever had is bubbling up and becoming crystallized in those conversations. And that's the moment I'm always trying to get back to. And that life is not for everybody, but this is truly my life goal is to do that and make my life to where I can do that until I'm dead. And we talk about that a lot with my friends of like, you're anxious in your job, you're trying to get this, you're trying to do that and make more money and whatever. But for what? Like, where are you going? Aspen? Yeah. Is that where you want to be? Like with those people? <laughs> like, I don't know. Where are you headed? Yeah. Well, in life creep, you know, I'm very conscious of that. And my parents were both very poor growing up. And my dad was a doctor in small town Montana. And so they had a nice life, but have always lived dramatically within their means in a way that sort of drove me crazy at times, you know, like is the three connection flight day really worth <laughs> saving a hundred dollars or like, do we really all have to sleep in the same hotel room? Right. We do. And it hasn't given them full peace. My mom has her own irrational anxiety about money and fear of becoming a bag lady, but they have a fair amount of peace. And I live in a tiny house. And yes, I live in a very nice neighborhood, but similar to you. My wants are not endless. I am at the end of my wants. And I don't want a life that's so big and unbounded that I am on putting myself on a treadmill with on an upward incline and don't know how to get off or scale down yeah. or live in a smaller way. It's interesting thinking about your parents too. And their origin story. I had never heard of the sensation that they walked across America. But talk about this sort of rambling adventure. It's very different. It's so difficult to parse out the influence of parents and how that affects your entire worldview. But both of my parents in their 20s and early 30s walked across America for five years and then became writers and wrote books about it and traveled and were, and my whole life, my parents have been writers. So I've never seen my parents go to work. 
I mean, I lived on a farm, so my dad would go like feed the cows, but they're like, he's like there. I mean, my parents divorced when I was young, but when I was there, like they're around and, and because they had such an alternative and strange life that I saw that model of just like, oh, do this, then that, and then you go and get this degree and then you go work in the big building and then this happens. Like I saw the unconventional life as normal. But I also saw, and I think this also created a certain scarcity mentality in me or something. My parents were very popular and famous in the early 80s and then their divorce and the chaos that followed like crashed and burned their stars. And so I grew up where the book deals dried up, the money dried up, the divorce was sad. I grew up like where we couldn't fly on a plane. We slept in the same hotel room. Every trip was a road trip, like only camping. Like we didn't even stay in hotels. We had like a, the world's shittiest pop-up trailer. And there was that tinge of the fall of Rome where it used to be so different. We used to be flown first class in a car waiting, a car service. Mm. There was that sense of tragedy mm. in it all, which I barely perceived, but now with hindsight, I did perceive. But it, it made me think that the gravy train can end, so don't live above your means. That was very much in my psyche, which I carry into my adulthood very much. Yeah. I love having enough money to eat out at restaurants whenever I want. And, you know, if something's cute on Facebook marketplace, I get it. But like, I do not have the like, Ooh, I need a Tesla. I don't feel that yeah. thing. I'm just like, no, no, I don't want any debt. Cause also as a writer, you know, this, you get paid in chunks that are very spread out. Yes. And, and you don't know when you'll be paid again. I mean, really, and where you're going to find the next thing. So, you might get a chunk of money that's cute. And you're like, wow, this is a lot of money in my taking account. But then you're like, is this the last money I'll ever make? Do mm -hmm. I have to live on this for a decade or for six months? I don't know. So it creates this scary thing about it. That is the life of a freelance or the life of a creative or the life of an artist. So there's a lot of us out there, but I don't know. It is so interesting how your parents influence everything, yeah. even outside of what they meant to influence. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, 
our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash thread. Masterclass.com slash thread. Another way in which makes you sort of an outsider insider or between two worlds or present to multiple realities that I think is needed and essential in our culture right now, where when we are sort of defining ourselves by these static, emblematic ideas, and not even as much as like at the same time, everyone's like, everything's mutable, everything's variable. It's so interesting how we are in one way is pushing past boundaries and binaries, And then at the same time, like, how do I nail down my identity with as many studs as possible so that I can own this corner or speak from the authority of this particular identity? So interesting, this like the mutability and then also the fixedness that I think we're experiencing. Yeah, I think that is what I'm trying to do in this book is just paint a picture of that like nature the universe speaks in metaphor and one of its truest things is paradox is holding two things that are both true at once. Like I remember laying in bed, I was probably 12. And before I go to bed, I'm thinking about the universe because my brain suddenly works. And I'm like, how can space be infinite? Infinity makes no sense to my mind. So then I'm imagining space expand, expand, expand. And then I hit a wall, which is the edge of space. And then I go, okay, so let's say space isn't infinite. Well, if you get to the edge of space, to the wall, what's on the other side of the wall? There has to be something on the other side of the wall. There can't be nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I remember thinking in that moment, those two scenarios are both impossible. But then also finiteness is impossible because there must be something on the other side of the wall. And I, I remember laying there being like, Oh, I actually think the computer brain that we have is not designed to understand the wholeness of reality. We're stuck in a partial understanding. Yeah. And that my little 12-year-old right now was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll never know. Whatever. Maybe we do know. But that to me was this first taste of a thing that keeps being reaffirmed by the metaphor universe of like, Yo, this is my fundamental lesson is that like you got to understand that you will have to hold things in attention and that's how you move through life. Yeah. Yes. And then also the tension of being simultaneously another paradox but both part and whole. And yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. you know, Wilbur again, but this like Jed's a whole person and you're part of a family structure and the way that we look for those alliances to create a whole intact system. I don't know. It's interesting, like the together apartness of of life and longing. The metaphor never ends. It's like one side says, the only thing that matters is inhaling. And the other side says, the only thing that matters is exhaling. And you're (laughs) even when you walk, each step, you're falling in one direction. And then you take the next step to fall in the other direction. And if you just step in one direction, you fall fucking over. It's like everything is telling us the truth, and yet we can't get it. I understand everyone's desire, too, for simplicity and 
certainty again and those types of answers. And and wanting, you know, to take it back to your mom for a second, the way that we project onto our parents some sort of ideal, I don't even know if it's an archetype, but there's that moment where you've arrived and you return. I thought you wrote about that beautifully too, like how the arrival is so anticipated. And then as soon as you're there, you're like, let's get home. Let's go. Like, let's get out of here. That moment when you turn on the beach, I've been there where you're like, all right, we're done going. Let's get back as fast as possible. But where you talk, you're in the car and you're like, say more. And you, you write, I take a moment to interrogate my expectations. What do I want from her? I want understanding. I want to see that she has grown wise and poetic from life. I want her to analyze and reflect. And you write about the generational differences that we've all been taught to unpack every moment and look for the moral (laughs) of the story. But what do you want besides, obviously, acceptance? Although, what would that do? Maybe this is an inane question. But your mom and her beliefs, and you write about that, too, I think, really beautifully, like how you don't want her to lose her belief. Yeah. Like how destabilizing that would be. How would you feel if she said, oh, yeah, my belief system is wrong. I'm wrong. I became a writer truly because I fell in love with C.S. Lewis when I first started Mm. reading. And the way he writes and the way he makes an argument was just so compelling to me. And one of the things that I realized he did in his writing is he would always imagine the alternative and he would walk through what that would be like if that happened. So like, if you're saying like, why is there pain in the world? Why is there suffering? And then it's like, okay, well, let's imagine there isn't. What are we talking about? And he would walk through that like thought experiment and you realize the absurdity of the alternative or you realize how great it is, whatever it is. It was just this idea of like imagining the scenario. And I think about like, wow, if my mom at 75 just said the Bible isn't real, I've been lied to, it was Mm -hmm. written by men to control women, whatever, I would be so thrown. And I mean, it took me all of my 30s to deconstruct just a childhood of that, you know, yeah, and deconstruct and rebuild a worldview that makes me feel safe. Yeah. I forget. I think I write about it in this book about how existential crises are for the young and middle-aged because you can deconstruct and then you've got time to build a new house. But if you're like having an existential meltdown in your seventies, now granted people are living longer and I hope my mom lives to be 140, but I don't know, like I'm fine. You like fall asleep with a smile on your face because Jesus has got your back. Like I'm down. I'll be fine to think of her weak and not feeling like God's got her back. I don't like that. It would make me sad. But I mean, you know, there are alternatives. I know lots of people who love Jesus and love gay marriage. Lots. Right. Yes. So is it a majority at this point, would you say? Oh, that's a good question. I bet you it is a majority of um, millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. Who would identify as Christian, but they're like, it's fine to be gay. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by generational blind spots. Like, I bet you my grandparents were not down with interracial marriage. Like they never said that, but like when you look at the polling, like in the sixties and fifties, it was not cute. They were like, that shouldn't happen. You know? And then all of a sudden, by the time millennials get around, we don't even think about it like at all. And it's just like we Gen X, whatever we were raised in this like different scenario where all of a sudden that conversation is like not 
something people are fighting about anymore. And I think about what is the blind spot when we're 70 and the young whippersnappers are doing something and we're like, that's wrong. And they're like, you are so stuck in the past. Yeah. yeah. My theory is it's going to be, I think that the young Gen Alpha and below are going to date and have romantic romantic relationships with AI, like in the movie Her, which I love that movie. Yeah. I am convinced that that's coming. And we will be like, you're not allowed to do that. That's not a real human or a real relationship. And not in my house. You're not dating a robot. I'm sorry. That is not a real person. You can't have real emotions. And we're going to be so in knots about it. And the young people are going to be like, I'm in love. I'm sorry. You can't stop me. <laughs> well, we'll finally be talking about like, what is consciousness? What? Right? Yeah. I feel like people already are having relationships with AI. And we move past so many binaries without really clocking them in our culture mm. and looking at sort of, I guess you could, you would call it progress, but evolution. And it is interesting to think about where our blind spot or cultural shadows are in this yeah. moment in time. Because they do exist. Oh, yeah. A thousand percent. Part of it I see is like this part of the denial of death, part of the denial of quote unquote darkness, and this clinging to purity, a different kind of purity, perfectionism, righteousness, where it's like, I harm no one. Are you kidding? Like, uh, my existence here is a dream. It's like, well, (laughs) do you use technology? Who mined those crystals? Like this unwillingness to look at all the death and despair on our planet that drives our lives. And that's sort of, I think, one of the big cultural hypocrisies. Is, it's very painful to look at. I'm not saying that we, we can spend our lives examining, mm-hmm. but we see the trails of it. We can go there. We can look at our supply chains. We can look at what's happening in Armenia or Syria mm. or you know all these parts of the world. And I don't know. I just, I come back to this place of feeling like I know a lot of people died so that I could live. Mm. And I know a lot of people suffered for the advantages that you and I have today and the creature comforts of life in America. I, I know that. But I think a lot of us want to disown all of that and project it onto other people and sidestep the cycle of life, which is... Mm. hard it's hard but there's you can't Mm. abdicate that you know it's so true we each have our own piece of it and then there's the big cultural part of it but it's staying in the fire unfortunately when it's so much easier and feels so much better as you said to get into our righteous rage and say like it's your fault and you're the villain and if you weren't doing that then this over here wouldn't happen uh, yeah i really feel like the moral test of a human growing towards enlightenment. I mean, it's back to Richard Rohr, like the full circle conversation is order, disorder, reorder, the stages of enlightenment. And I think order is conservative, like old time religion. Disorder is liberal, progressive. Fuck that. Fuck the man. Let's burn this place to the ground and start over and then reorder is everything belongs and each thing has its place in moderation and the dance between the two is what makes anything possible yeah 
And it's trying to like go through those stages of life and you can't skip a step. I don't know. I think the theme of this episode of your podcast is go listen to everything Richard Rohr. (laughs) I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. In a nutshell... How do you think about your faith if you have faith? It seems if you have Richard Rohr, you have some version. And if you're into spiral dynamics, you, there's some container for you. Who else do you read and look to? Who's shaping your perspective? I would say the four horsemen of my mind are Wendell Berry, Mary Oliver, Thomas Merton, and James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably like 10 horsemen, but the open spirituality of Mary Oliver, where she can just like look at a decomposing lizard and just like love it. That is where I want to be. I'm just obsessed. And then this, the moral clarity and like agrarian, whatever Wendell Berry is, I just like die for him. I love clear thinking and I love a, a reverence for just this like experiment of being alive that these people have. I would say my spiritual experience is just curiosity. I am so down for whatever is real. I am so down. I don't care what it is. If the Left Behind series is true and we are going to get raptured at any minute, oh my God, great. I'm ready. Like, 
<laughs> and I'm ready to be left behind. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't follow that absolutely batshit story. How could I be expected to? It's batshit. And so if I'm left behind, I shouldn't go there anyway. I don't want to go there. That sounds terrible. So like, I'll just be here and burn, whatever. So it's like, I'm very down for whatever is true. <laughs> <laughs> I love it to be raptured. Well, congrats on another beautiful book. I'm so Let's... happy. You're so happy about the book? Yeah, it's like you said, the runway is so long. Like I turned this in a year ago and I got my first copy of it in late February, like the, the reader's copy. And my friends were reading it and they were like, oh my God, this is going to change lives. I'm so like, oh my God, my mom. I, I don't know. And they're like, when can I give it to my mom? And I'm like, November. That is so long <laughs> from now. Like we're going to be different people in November. So it's finally here. I'm thrilled. Well, anything that opens up the wedge between mothers and mothering that opens that aperture a little bit to let everyone tell the truth about their lives in the most loving way. I mean, that's one of my mm. passions as a mom and having a mom who is complicated and not complicated in so many ways. But I wrote a New York Times op-ed earlier this year when my book came out about the ambivalence of motherhood and how loving your children and loving mothering are often synonymous in our culture. And that mm. we don't really allow our moms any space to have their own feelings about their lives that somehow, particularly I think for girls, it, whatever you do impugns the choices that your own mother made and or is a reflection either of what she wants you to carry forward or a disavowal of everything that she gave you. I don't know. That is the most primary relationship for so many of us. But to not really be able to air it and talk about it. And in some ways, like your book to me, read as when I was talking about holding your mom close and looking at her, it's like you almost are able to depersonalize her beliefs. I know that they're so strongly held, but it just didn't seem in any way to color her love for you. I don't know, the more we can air these relationships out and make them as multivariate as they are, I think the mm -hmm. more healing there is for all of us. Oh, oh my God. I wish I could print what you just said on the back of this book before it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Oh, well, hopefully they listen to this podcast. <laughs> that was exactly what I'm trying to get at, and I could have never said it better. I love Jedediah's mind, and it's really a beautiful book and about so much more than sexuality and religious fundamentalism. It's about adventure and love and wanting to see the world through other people's eyes, including those who don't have the same beliefs. And it's also about aging and watching the evolution or the change in people that we, that are formative in the creation of our own lives and our own identities and watching them change and begin to let go a bit more of the physical, I think it's hard. I, it's not something that I want to think about or look at with my own parents. And so the book is also a really beautiful study in aging. And 
There's this one part where he writes, The erosion of dreams seems to be a feature of aging. When you're young, you think, maybe I'm good at ping pong or graphic design. I've never tried. Maybe my future husband is a doctor or firefighter. I haven't met him yet. Maybe I'll be famous. Maybe I'll be a teacher. I haven't opened many doors, but what if the best, loveliest thing is behind the next one? There's a chance, right? And I think that there was something so moving about him undertaking this journey that his mom did with his dad so long ago to see how the landscape has changed, to see how she's changed, and in some ways, the ways in which she hasn't changed at all. And so it's also very much a testament to time, love, and how we all move through the world and are changed for it and by it. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at elisalunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next time. <laughs>